have this time together to discuss the things of God and God's word. Let me make sure I've got my mic straightened out. We're going to look together at a passage of scripture in Genesis 1, verse 26 and 27. So if you have your Bible with you, and you have it accessible on phone, or you can see it up on the screen here in a moment, I'm going to read from this passage and trust that the Lord will open our hearts and help us to hear it. In Genesis 1, 26 and 27, we read, Then God said, Let us make humankind in our own image, according to our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle and over all the wild animals of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, unlock this verse to us. Help us to discover today, Lord, fresh and new way of seeing what it is to be a human being made in the image and likeness of God. Holy Spirit, come and speak to us. Transform us and change us, we pray in Jesus' name. <clears throat> Amen. <clears throat> the theological concept of God's image is a very popular topic. In the last hundred years, according to ATLA, over 2,300 articles in peer-reviewed journals and over 420 books have addressed the topic in varying degrees. A search using WorldCat yields even more results, nearly 90,000 articles of books of all languages. Can you imagine? The topic is so wildly popular that it is, has its own pet name, Imago Dei, from the Latin. It, it gives it such a grand feel, don't you think? In light of its popularity, though, you might think that the entire Bible addresses this concept and thoroughly explains it, leaving no ambiguity. Unfortunately, you'd be wrong. In the Old Testament, the image and likeness of God is directly mentioned in only three passages. Here in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, where we're looking, but also in chapter 5, verses 1 to 3, and in chapter 9, verse 5 and 6. Now, each of these passages seems to come from the same family of writers or copyists. In Old Testament scholarship, this group of copyists is known as P, the letter P for priestly. Now, I don't have time to provide an adequate explanation for why that is important, other than to say that the first five books of Hebrew scripture, when they were consigned to written form, now it's important that you know that originally the stories, what we call the Old Testament, were all told orally. They weren't written. Uh, perhaps the, 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 the Ten Commandments of Moses, they, they seem to have been written and constitute what they might have known as the book of the law, but everything else consigned to story. But at some point, once Israel is cast out of their homeland and they become spread all around, it's very important now this story is written down. And so most scholars believe that Jewish scribes combined four versions. In other words, there were four ways in which the story was told. Very similar, but with just its own nuances that come with orally telling a story from generation to generation. They took the, the story and the themes addressed in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. We call it the five books of Moses or the Pentateuch. 
So do you understand and follow me so far? There's these versions, and now we have to put them down in writing. They took these popular versions that were told by the, the, those learned, the, by, the, by the teachers of the day, and they bring them together and they put them into one story. And it's only fitting that the group tasked with pastoral care of God's people would want to point out that ethics is undoubtedly rooted in the creation of human beings. Isn't that extraordinary? All three instances seem to come from their collection, recollections of the stories. It makes its way into the written text. Theologians and scholars among Christians and even Judaism and Islam all are all over the map in what, can, what it conveys and what it states concerning humanity. There has been some general consensus, but it's just so varied. Uh, it, it, there's just almost no way to say everybody agrees on just this thing. For many, humanity has lost the image and likeness of God. Others split the notions of image and likeness, arguing that one was lost but the other not. Some maintain it has been marred or damaged but not lost, while others protest and argue that it remains intact. From the 2nd to the 15th century, the apostolic fathers as well as the medieval scholastics consistently separated image from likeness arguing that humans have retained the image of God but lost the likeness. For the most part, they concluded that the likeness would be restored by Christ at redemption. You see what I'm saying? You, we kept it, we lost one, but Christ has redeemed us, and in that process of redemption, it's restored to us. However, in the wake of the Protestant Reformation, both Luther and Calvin concluded that humanity forfeited the imprint of God's image and likeness because of the sins and the rebellion of Adam and Eve, and that it can only be restored by Christ and then ultimately at the resurrection of our bodies. Now, do you see the difference in one? Since for the longest time, most theologians and teachers, it, 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 we've lost one but not the other, but it'll be restored at redemption. And then for now, over these last 500 years, the emphasis has been on we've lost them both. And they're only ultimately restored when, when we are resurrected. At that point, it's in a process now while we're being saved and all of that, but then at resurrection, it's completely restored. Unfortunately, both positions create great difficulties for us. After all, how could we possibly speak about the nobility and superiority of humans over all created things, let alone the intellectual and creative responsibility of humankind over our environment, or even the insistence that moral living, that moral living would be required of all human beings if they're nothing more than totally depraved, or some might say dirty rank sinners. Now think of that. If that's what you think about human beings, totally depraved, nothing good in them. How in the world can we address even the most profound and important and consequential things of our time? How could you go out and expect anybody to be moral, even if they don't know God? We still expect certain types of behavior. Morality is a, is a constant, it seems, in all of humanity. How could we expect it of anyone if they're nothing more than totally depraved, a dirty rank sinner? The concept is so murky to discern that many have simply abandoned what it means for the average human altogether. Well, I don't know what it means for people, but I know this one thing. It means something about Christ because Christ is the image of God. It's way safer. Just stick with Jesus, right? We'll just focus on that Jesus is it. We know he's it. So we don't, we'll just not even worry about what the rest is. So much safer. This is, after all, what the New Testament writers have done. And I agree with the writer of Hebrews 
when he states God, who at various times and in diverse ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his son, who is the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. There is no doubt in my mind, Jesus is the express image of the heavenly father. You want to know what God's like? Then you have to look at the life of Jesus. You want to know how God would act towards any individual in the world? You'd have to say, well, how would Jesus deal with that individual? But God did not stop loving humanity after the fall, nor did God, as I'm about to argue, strip humanity of his image and likeness. Like many in the past, you might protest, yes, he did. And the evidence is that humankind was banished from the Garden of Eden. That's our evidence. They got stripped of it and they're abandoned from it. But this cannot even stand a cursory view of the biblical text for several reasons. First, the Lord God acknowledges that human beings have become even more like God in that they now possess the knowledge of good and evil. We read this in the first part of Genesis 3 and verse 22. God almost having a conversation with himself. They have become more like us. It literally says it. They have become more like us in that now they possess the knowledge of good and evil. I'm often asked, Dr. Pruitt, what, what does it mean to possess the knowledge of good and evil? Well, my response is simple. I don't try, I'm not trying to be trite with it, but just if you want to get the essence of it, I would have to say it is to know that I can do something evil and gain pleasure or gratification from it. That I could treat you in a way that would be bad, but I, it makes me feel better about myself. That I could steal and I could gain a possession. It's mine, you know. That I could, that I could curse someone on the road. And it just made me feel better. <laughs> that just let me get it out right there. And I'll be fine when I get to church. But I needed to get it out right there. You retain that stuff that make you a bitter person. You know, we justify all manner of... But what we're doing is we're saying that I now know I could do something evil or bad and I would gain pleasure or gratification from it. Armed with this new God-like awareness... The Lord God determines that humans must be removed from access to the tree of life, lest they eat of the tree and live forever. Now, that's Genesis 3.22 again, the last part of that verse. Well, that's the first reason why it doesn't stand up to a cursory view of reading the scripture. But the second is even more profound in that twice more in the Genesis narrative, and at least one time in the New Testament, we read that humanity is still in the image and likeness of God. Do I have your attention yet? You ready to dig in and find out what it is? Let's walk through this together. Number one, what is the image in the likeness of God? Many have tried to separate image from likeness. In almost all instances, their goal is to show that one was retained while the other was lost in the fall of humanity. For example, the most, profound, the most consistent one has been image was retained and likeness was lost. But there have been some that have gone the other direction in that as well. We then gain the view that one was won back through the atoning work of Christ. I think we can all agree that whatever we lost in the fall of humanity, Jesus has both overcome it and restored it in us through redemption. We refer to this as the salvific work of Christ or quite simply Christ's saving work. Unfortunately, this attempt struggles because we attempt to, we're tempting to be precise with words that are not precise across time, space, culture, and language. Do you see, every time we read it, 
and we translate it into another language, and then hundreds of years go by, and then we translate it again. The, the idea of what is the image, the idea of what is the likeness, even trying to convey that across different people groups, is not precise. And after a while, we find we're not precise with that either. There are times that people would talk about the image but use the word likeness. And times people would be writing about the likeness and they would use the word image. You see, they're not being precise. And if they're not precise, how would we ever know where we're at in this conversation? Moreover, it fails to account for Hebrew parallelism. Now, Hebrew parallelism is the rhetorical device that expresses something in one way only to follow with a secondary way of expressing the same idea, not a different idea. In other words, you would say something in one way, comma, then you would say it again, maybe slightly nuanced, but you're not talking about something altogether different. It's not like saying it could be white or black. You'd say it's white or it could be more cream. You'd say it like that. In our verse here, we might say God made humans in his image, which is his likeness. That might be an apt way of saying it in English. So, Dr. Pruitt, what do you think it means? I agree that it's Hebrew parallelism here. The writers, when they consigned it to written form, this would have been how they would have been writing. Now, only later, once people tried to translate to Greek, and then the Greek and the Latin speakers began to try to dissect them, did they separate them altogether. But more than that, I think the phrase image and likeness of God means that God made the human race superior to all things. For me, this is a distinction that is shared among all human beings, not just some, but all. Now, this is very important. Moreover, I would argue that this capacity and distinction is not lost in the fall of Adam and Eve for the single reason, the simple reason, that they are not the model for God's special creation. I mean, you could not look and say, God decided I'm going to make something grand here. And he makes Adam and Eve, and then we all look back and say, that's the model. That's what it truly means to be male. That's what it truly means to be female. This cannot be because they are not the model for it. We've become corrupt, you see, but that has not changed how we've been made. It's not been changed how we made because they're not the model for how it was made. Let me explain this in two ways. First, in the wisdom and counsel of God, he set out to create a being that is both like himself and of the created order. So he's creating the worlds, right? And he has a domain now that's controlled by time and space. And we read in the Genesis 1 narrative, let, let us make... Man in our own image, in our own likeness. But here's the distinction. He's not going to be omnipotent. He's not going to be omniscient. He's not going to live in the outward expanse of eternity. He's going to be confined to time and space. So let's, let's make a created being that's like us but confined to this space. Somehow God imagined what he might be like if he replicated himself inside created order. I believe this model was none other than Jesus, the righteous one. No, no doubt in my mind that God could think through that what's happening here. If I were human, what would I be like? And he, he creates in that image of what, because Christ is, we read in Colossians 1, Christ is the image of the invisible God. He is. I mean, how else can you get around breaking one of the Ten Commandments that you shall have no graven image, no images of God, and yet we paint pictures of Jesus all the time? And we've been doing it for centuries. Do you know why the ancient church felt like that was okay? Because God himself gave a face to God. 
put a human face on God. Isn't that extraordinary? He is the model, you see, because of this Adam and Eve do not control the image and the likeness of God. If they were the model, then they broke it. We would never even know what it was supposed to be because it's broken. But they are not it, therefore they don't have control over it. That distinction falls to Jesus alone. They acquire the knowledge of good and evil in a corrupt manner, which continues to produce all manner of corruption to this day. This is Paul's entire argument. You know, Paul doesn't argue, you're not in the image and likeness of God. He said, everyone is unrighteous. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. He keeps using the word that we translate righteous and unrighteous. Corruption has entered into humanity because of the sin of Adam and Eve. Jesus has come to remedy this corruption through the greatest expression of love ever known. He redeemed what God created in his image and likeness. And for second reason, Von Rod, he made this argument that, it, that the expression demonstrates that God acts more directly in our creation and precision is given to its special relationship. So what does it mean that we're made in God's image? Well, Von Rod's argument was that it, it demonstrates that we're special. Simply stated, God makes human beings special. Now stick with me. No doubt this is true. The Lord God spoke everything into existence except human beings. If you've not noticed it in the Genesis 1, chapter 1 narrative, God speaks every single thing that happens. He just speaks it and it exists. But not when he comes to the creation of human beings. For that he, in effect, got down into the process. If I can, if I can humanize God a little bit here, he... He, he steps out of glory right down on the created order and scoops up some dirt and forms human beings. He does it with his own hands and his own breath, we read in chapter 2. The psalmist is correct. God made human beings a little lower than the angels, and he crowned them with glory and honor. So when God looks at you, he says, you are made in my image and my likeness, and I have crowned you with glory and honor. And you might be thinking, has he seen my hair? Does he know how I'm shaped? Does he see the blotchiness of my skin? God, I think you must be talking about somebody else. Nope. But Lord, I'm deaf. Lord, I'm blind. You are made in my image and likeness, and you are crowned with glory and honor. I, I come from a people that's looked down on, and I, people denigrate me because of the color of my skin, or because of the amount of money that I have. I've tried to go into places where really rich people are attending. Judy and I both, we've gone in, and we put on our best clothes, and we walk in there, and we feel like we walked right out of Target. Nobody had to tell us, you're not dressed properly here. And so God, do you see how I'm dressed? God, do you see how much money I have? How can you say that? You are made in my image. You are crowned with glory and honor. If he sees two of us in the room, guess what? He says, you are both made in my image and likeness, and I've crowned each of you with glory and honor. But you may ask, well, one of us is, is a criminal, an evildoer, or we're just plain nasty and nobody likes them. It doesn't matter. But I have good reason to badmouth another. After all, they are inferior to me. No, you don't. And no, they aren't. I have made them in my image and likeness and crowned them with glory and honor. 
Could scripture be any clearer on this issue than to state the tongue is a fire, it stains the whole body, sets on fire the cycle of nature, and is itself set on fire by hell, a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless the Lord and Father, and with it we curse those who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessings and cursings. My brothers and sisters, this ought not to be so. Do you finally understand All human beings are made in the image and likeness of God. That is why Jesus could say and even command of us, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your father in heaven for he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good. God doesn't look down and say, oh, there's the ones with the image and likeness there. We'll be good to them. But the rest of you, sorry, no sunshine. He looks down on the earth and he says, they're made in my image and likeness. They're crowned with glory and honor. I'm giving them the sun. I'm giving him the rain. He makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good. He sends his rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Be perfect, therefore, as your father in heaven is perfect. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Well, you might argue that's only true in a Christian sense. The heathen of the world are not in the image and the likeness of God. But I'm telling you, no. For the Apostle Paul, this is the very beginning point for the world to understand that there are two made in God's image and likeness. We know this since he grounds his message at the Areopagus in Acts 17 on two foundational premises. One, from one ancestor, he made all nations to inhabit the earth and the allotted times and space of their existence and the boundaries of the places where they would live so that they would search for God and perhaps grope for him and find him. Though indeed he is not far from each one of us. And second, for in him we live and move and have our being, even as some of your own prophets have said, we too are his offspring. He's not preaching to the church. He's preaching to a town square full of philosophers and people that stand around coming up with new ideas. Total heathen don't know God at all. And he says, we are all his offspring. We are all made from one ancestor. Since this is true, how could we harbor or justify racism, superiority, or privilege? How is it that we do that? So number two, why is this important? What does this mean for us? Well, it's really quite simple, don't you see? There are many things, but at least two have profound implications for our time. First of all, the moment we strip human beings of God's image and likeness, we proceed down a path to deprive them of equality and worth, of value and respect. Whether it is our intention or not, we create us and them. We are better than them because we have been restored to God's image and likeness, and they have not. It is how Christians justified the Crusades of the 11th and 12th centuries. We can go down there and kill all the heathen because they're not made in the image and likeness of God. It's how we justified the Spanish Inquisitions. It's how we justified, you say, who's who's we now got lost there? It's how the church justified the peasant wars during the Reformation period. It's how we justified the colonial area, not just part of it, the whole thing. That one nation could go and subjugate another people because they're inferior to them after all, you see. They don't even have religion. We asked them, what's your religion? They said, we don't have one. They just didn't have a word that meant religion because for them, the the realm of the sacred and the profane weren't separated. They were all one thing. But the Europeans came along and said, oh, these are separate things. We have our day life and then we've got our religious life. And when they said, what's your religion? They said, 
We don't have one. Oh, they're heathen. We must bring. Now, do I think we should evangelize? Of course, but, but that doesn't mean we went in with the sword and we took their land from them. Here, we'll give you the Bible, but we're taking your land. Now, think about all the horrors of the colonial era. Now, some people say, oh, you're trying to, you're trying to rewrite history. No, I'm not rewriting it. I'm just telling you how it is. It's been rewrit. <laughs> Can I say that, Judy? that okay? I'm from Southern Illinois. It's already been rewrit. I'm rewriting it. Chattel slavery. That's how we justified it. I don't know how any learned person could even, could even look at themselves if they had a mirror in the day <laughs> to write, African slaves are worth three-fifths a person. We, we didn't just write it in some book somewhere. We put it in the Constitution of the United States of America. Now, we've since had to line that out. But can you imagine who the person was that day that said, I think African slaves are worth three-fifths a person. Yeah, that sounds good to me, too. You would only be able to do that if you knew they were inferior to you. They're not made in the image and likeness of God crowned in glory and honor. They're made some other way. And theologians have come along and baited the trail as well because we said, oh, oh yeah, uh, 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 certain colors of people, they're that way because we can read here in the scripture that they're cursed. And that's what happened. And there's just no way to do that theologically, let alone with the scripture. What a twisted way to think. I think the worst thing of our time right now, the church, the, I think the greatest, one of the greatest struggles for sure the church is facing right now, it's how we're justifying the merging of American nationalism with Christianity. I, I'm an American. I thank God I'm an American. But I'm a Christian way before that. And you can never escape love your neighbor as yourself. Never. Or even it's how we've justified support for nations who seek dominance or superiority in one form or another. Think of all the horrible things that have been done in the name of the Lord our God because we've refused to realize that every human being has been created in the image and the likeness of God. This verse for me is God's anti-racism policy right here. Right there. And you say, no, I think it's more complicated. It probably is more complicated. And there's probably lots of nuances, but you, can't, you have to start in one spot. And where you're going to start is right there. You are less than me, therefore I can do to you. But when you realize you're not less than me, you're the same as me. Dr. Antipas Harris was on campus a few terms ago, and I said, oh, dear brother, come, come guest lecture in my, class, my Old Testament history and lit class. He said, I'd love to. What day and time, what's the topic? I said, well, that particular week we're going to be discussing race relations in the Old Testament. He said, be happy to be there. He comes in, and he, he gives a, just a wonderful uh, lecture to the class and answers their questions, but he makes this one statement. It's like a bell goes off. Ding! I mean, it, uh, my head was rattling when he said it because I'd probably heard it before. My guess is he didn't invent it, but he said it and right then the Holy Spirit said, that's it right there. He said, there are no races. There's only the human race. You said, no, I'm pretty sure that I heard science is pre No, they haven't. You said, are, are you saying there's not cultures, there's not ethnicities, there's not... No, they're, they're all of that. All the colors you can think of. I was in a meeting one time, and the, the brother got up to lead the worship, and he's leading the music. Wonderful and eloquent, 
African-American minister, and he says, let me make a statement to my brothers and sisters of a different hue. He used the word hue. And I thought to myself, how elegant of a way to say the wonderful collage in which God has created of our lives. We are just, we're just part of the hues. <laughs> H-U-E, you know what I mean? Just the color spectrum, it's so beautiful. Dr. Harris was not saying there's no such thing as that. He's saying there's no such thing as races. There's only one race, the human race, you see. And second, why does this matter to us? I want to invite the worship team to come and start getting ready. This passage is the starting point of all issues related to gender. Now, if it's true that it speaks to our, our ignorance about racism, that how we embrace it, it also speaks to our ignorance about gender. Gender is an indispensable quality of human beings, being created in the image and the likeness of God, crowned with glory and honor. God made humans in his likeness. How? By making them male and female. So at the very beginning, God says, I'm going to make human beings in my image and likeness. Wow, God, that's neat. How are you going to do that? I'm going to make a male and female. Going to what? I'm going to make a male and female. Because it's not possible to put all my image and likeness just in one gender. I'm, a, I'm, going, to, I'm going to split it so that they need each other. God made the male from the dust of the earth, no doubt to link him to the created order, but he made the female from genetic material taken from the male to inexorably link them together as, as equals in creation. Do you understand what I'm saying? Don't get lost in the weeds. I'm going to make a helper comparable to him, equal to him. You say, but since the fall, we've not had equality. Right, that's a consequence of corruption, not a consequence of how God has made us. We can never disengage from the notion of gender. And there's, there's some talk going on. We should just dispense with he and him, she and her. Just do away with it. It just causes all kinds of havoc. I would say, no, we cannot. Because in the moment in which God creates humans, this is how he makes them. We cannot dispense with them because it is exactly what it means to be human. Whatever else we may do to live in peace with one another, we must always allow gender to remain a crucial consideration in the process. We can never dispense with it. Whether it's in discussions concerning equality between men and women, pay disparity. Now, some people want in the business place, well, just think about employees. We won't give any consideration to man or woman. We, we, we must always give consideration to it because we all have unique needs. You say, but that makes one weaker or one stronger. No, it doesn't. It makes us exactly as God has made us. In his image and likeness. So you see, you can never dispense with it. What about raising our children in a fallen world? Or what about even embracing trans individuals in the love of Christ? We must always allow gender to be an important aspect of the process. We, we can never escape from it. We think things are messed up today. We, we need to get out. We cannot because it's how God has made us. So I conclude with this. Why, why does Jesus mandate that we love our neighbor as ourselves? Because we are made equally in God's image and likeness. Yeah, come on, give God glory. You see, racial bias, 
and gender inequality is prohibited in the truth of Genesis 1, 26 and 27. You don't have to read very far in the Bible to get that message. Only if you cover your eyes can you think you could use the Bible to justify such a horrible thing. But remember who we are. May God help us live out this truth. Lord Jesus, I want everybody to stand. Let's just stand and lift our hands and ask the Lord. Help us to live this truth. Help us, Heavenly Father, lift this truth. Help us live this truth. And we'll give you thanks for it, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.